You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore digital culture, media, technology, and memes, featuring critical and empowering conversations with experts at the forefront of our digital moment. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is Dr. Jamie Cohen. How can we separate hype from hallucination in AI games? It's my privilege to welcome AI games designer Reed Berkowitz back to the Digital Void podcast. Reed is the director of Curiouser Institute, where he has more than two decades of experience working with companies like Microsoft, Paramount, and Universal. On today's episode, we discuss the development and design of AI games from top to bottom to separate myth from messy reality. First, we unpack the language most commonly used in AI game development. Then, Reed walks us through an example of an AI chatbot game where you can interact with an NPC or non-playable character that he helped design in order to explain how this all works in action. We also explore other aspects of AI game development. What brand safety risks do companies like Nintendo and Microsoft assume with AI NPCs? And why is it so important studios perfect this technology before they roll it out? How might AI games lead to more jobs for writers rather than fewer? And will large language models ever be able to produce anything other than the average of its inputs? Before we get started this week, I wanted to thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. Coming off of our best month ever, I want to encourage you to follow and subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast platform. Share this episode on social media. Write us your thoughts at hello at digitalvoid.media and let us know the topics you think we should explore as we move forward. Now, here's today's conversation with AI games designer, Reed Berkowitz. Reed, it is such a pleasure to welcome you back to the Digital Void podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So today we're going to be looking at something a little bit different than alternate reality games, as we've discussed before, and more along the lines of the artificial intelligence track that we've talked about. We've talked about how to speak to an AI and some of the issues of hallucinations in previous conversations. But today we're going to look at AI games and specifically the complicated nature of NPCs in games and why it's been so tricky for mid to large game studios to integrate AI NPCs into games. So Reed, you've been working in AI games for more than two years now, and I really found such value in your two articles, AI games, complicated characters, and AI powered NPCs, hype or hallucination. And I would love to start with a trailhead to lead us into our conversation, which is how can asking an NPC to go next door to grab a coffee break an entire game? (laughs) That's a good question. And I definitely do talk about it in the article and use it as a rabbit hole too. So um, thank you. It's a simple question with a difficult answer, but the simple answer would be that there is no coffee in this game world and the characters uh, it's a science fiction world that you've created. So the character saying, hey, let's go grab a cup of coffee next door. They also can't leave their their bar because you haven't programmed them to do that. And there is no next door. There is no coffee shop next door because you haven't built it. And they couldn't walk there and navigate to get to the coffee, even if it existed and the broom existed because you haven't programmed in those characters to Wayfind. So basically what it means is that any conversation that you have with an NPC in the game could potentially be game breaking 
even if the AI characters are behaving and saying natural, normal things that would work in a chat or other environment. And this is because of two terms that I would love to unpack. The first term is game state, and the second is dictionary.com's 2023 word of the year, hallucination. Can you unpack these and how game state and hallucinations impact this directly? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Game state is a huge problem because when you're using an AI or large language model, there is no state. It does not really remember things in the same way that a game does. It does have a rudimentary state. It has what's called a context in which you can add text that it is supposed to pay attention to, but may or may not choose to, uh, depending on how the model was trained and how big the context size is and, and so on. But it's nothing like a true game state. And that means that it's just pure text. So in other words, uh, if the large language model says that uh, you have killed the ogre, later on, it may not remember that. <laughs> and the ogre might be back <laughs> in scene two because it ran out of context memory or it just decided to ignore it and felt like an ogre would be good here or you know, something like that. So there's no real state and that causes problems in, in gameplay tremendously <laughs> because if you shoot five arrows and you've got 15 arrows left, you don't want to be told that you have no arrows or that you've killed somebody and they come back to life, or you are, in fact, a female or a male, depending on how the, you know, the text decides it would be best to interpret you at that moment. <laughs> and in a chat, you might just re-roll it or edit it. But in a game, it's absolutely game-breaking. And so that's game state. And that, that means that in LLM gaming, there's no challenge, there's no progression because nothing has state. So in other words, if you want to change an NPC's mind about something, whether they like you or don't like you or anything, it's all just in the text. But they don't have any knowledge of you and you don't have any knowledge of them that can be actionable. So you can't progress like in a visual novel or something like that where you, you make five positive compliments towards somebody and then they start liking you and go down a different dialogue tree. One of what VC was writing about, why hasn't this been done with you know with ai why is it is it all so easy well that's why because there's no game state and tying the ai into game state means that you can do real game stuff but it doesn't come out of the box like that unfortunately hallucination is is even worse because that means that the ai will say things that aren't quote true it, it doesn't have any knowledge of what is real or not real according to us and everybody's trying to solve this problem and make the AI be truthful and factual. But then you're in a game environment, which isn't truthful and factual, but is in fact another story. And so then you have to train the AI to only say things that are in this game world. And then the problem goes on and on where now every character in the game world has to only know what they know. And then things change in the game world. And then the characters have to know that. So again, it still ties into some type of game state, but getting the AI to not just hallucinate quests and you know hallucinate characters that don't exist and things that it can do that it can't do and items it has <laughs> that it can't give you. 
is a big problem. <laughs> so I'm thinking about someone who's never thought about game design or development. And so how do these two particular factors compare to the development of a non-AI video game? And so why is it so much more difficult for AI NPCs to be created? And what underlies the desire to have them at all? Well, I'll start with the second part. The desire to have them at all is is sort of this playing with the AI is just fun. Like it, it's an alien kind of you know interaction that we've never really had before. You can program you know NPCs to say certain things depending on on certain choices that you make, but you've never had a machine, an inanimate object, just be creative and talk to you and say something you don't expect or the programmers <laughs> don't expect. It's a wild experience, especially your first time. So I think the promise is that, you know, a world of living characters that can take you on journeys that have never been, that are reflective of you personally, and that go places that no one's ever seen before. So the the sort of like trope of this is that, I don't know if you can have a trope of something that, that hasn't actually happened yet, but but you get this example a lot of like, okay, so I go and I talk to the innkeeper and then I meet his family and I marry his daughter and he sends me out on these quests and he's part of my family and he goes with me on adventures. Turns out he's a great warrior and we have these adventures and only he knows about the cave of Maldor and, and the whole thing opens up based on what you like. You could follow any anything becomes a rabbit hole if you can get the characters to be alive you know to create themselves and they can create endless games it's like and and then the sort of meta version of this is having an ai dungeon master that can create endless sort of like game worlds that are based on what you like in that moment right so then instead of like ai pc characters or npc characters you have ai dungeon masters that can if you want to go explore the, you know, the undead unicorn graveyard, <laughs> you suddenly can just by poofing it into existence <laughs> or talking to somebody who might bring you there. So it just adds this crazy, infinite quality to it that might be something like if you've read Ender's Game, the, the sort of mind game or any of these sort of like holodeck like uh, experiences. Yeah. And so that's the desire for an AI NPC is creating an endless game. And it seems like, based on the study that you quoted by InWorld, that out of a thousand gamers, the statistics are amazing, that 99% of people believe AI NPCs would positively impact gameplay, 81% would be willing to pay more, and yet uh, mid to large size game companies have not been able to figure out how to deploy AI NPCs or implement this at scale. So... How would you explain the terrain and the difficulty of this? And then we'll dive into a case study that you outline. Sure. Well, difficulties are large. <laughs> so I don't want to take another 20-minute monologue here to like outlining them all. But <laughs> there are such big problems that range so far afield. So for instance, even down to the fact that like NPCs in games right now are very rigid and you can control what they say and that makes them boring. You don't stop and talk to some peasant in a medieval MMORG because they're just going to say, I have turnips for sale or check out my fine wares. So you would think, oh, there'd be the, all this effort to go into making this person a human-like you know, construct that has, that's deep, that can bring you into other things. But the problem is that one, they could say horrible things to you 
right? You you don't want a Pokemon to suddenly, you know, lead you into a life of crime or, you know, say something that would ruin a, a treasured brand in like one moment. And uh, we can all imagine things <laughs> that the that, that a large language model could come up with that might be seemingly innocuous, but might really, really like sink a, an entire franchise. <laughs> so there's a, there's a risk and safety factor there, but I mean, you know, Microsoft has taken that risk and they've filtered things and figured out how to, how to do it, but it's still a bigger problem for games because you've got kids and you've got a whole brand that can't be fiddled with too much. So I think people are risk averse of having live LLMs and games for that reason. But the bigger reasons are that it just doesn't sync with gameplay. You, you, there, there are games out there now using current, using InWorld, and using other uh, LLMs. And the fact is that they will hallucinate quests for you to go on. They'll tell you to do things that that you can't do, that they can't do. They'll try to give you items that they don't have. <laughs> it gameplay is actually incredibly precise. If you jump from one platform to another and you're just a little bit off. Right, you fall, and if you make it, you're on, and you feel absolutely cheated. If you make something, if you get that kill, or you get that, you land that thing, and you and you fall anyway, that's game breaking, and you can't tolerate it even one out of a thousand times. So, <laughs> LLMs uh, hallucinate. Even the best LLMs hallucinate at least three percent of the time, and that's that's OpenAI's GPT-4, I believe. And that doesn't even count all the gameplay stuff that has to happen where you have to teach them a whole new world. And, and like, basically, if, if somebody in a game says, hey, you want to go to my house and, and you know, play poker, the game, you know, your, your willing suspension of disbelief is gone because you can't go to their house and you don't have poker programmed into the game. So it's just it's just incredibly difficult. You have to put these LLMs on rails and at the same time, you can't make them so flat and boring that they're worse than what a talented writer could do. And talented writers are talented. They're, you know, like I'm one of those people that will follow NPCs around in GTA just to listen to what people have written for them to say as they walk by because it's so funny. So you have to have an, an LM of a very high quality, but also that doesn't ruin the game by any of these millions of I think this is a really good opportunity to dive into a case study, a police interview, Grilling Molly Stone, that you outline in the article. Because I want to return to the fact that you discuss really great writers, because I think that there's a misconception when we're speaking about AI gaming that AI will eliminate writers, that the goal of AI in games is that writers will no longer be needed to uh, craft dialogue or to imagine scenarios or design really captivating experiences. And so I, I want to return to that in a bit, but I want to introduce a few terms uh, to the audience first and the case study. So I think the one term that we should really dive into before we get into this is, can you explain what red teaming is? Yeah, red teaming is basically trying to, in game design anyways, basically trying to break the game. <laughs> Or uh, be the bad guys in whatever scenario you're running. If it's a tabletop exercise, you're the hackers. If you're working on game design or prompt engineering, it's trying to break the prompt and expose the, the inner workings of the game. So it's just an internal team that's trying to do what 
the internet's going to do as soon as you release it. So basically, Reed, if you were developing a game and you had a pirate named Redbeard, to use an example from the article and amend it just a little bit, then you would try as a red teamer to try to get the pirate to go off the rails before it's released to the public so that you're finding vulnerabilities and exploits. Can you explain why you provide Grilling Molly Stone, which, by the way, everyone listening to this podcast should click the link in the show description and follow through because Reed has generously made this game available to play for you as well. So yeah, the reason why I chose Grilling Molly Stone as like a first example is because it ties to game state. So I should also add that this was created in collaboration with Eric Evans, who is a brilliant programmer who made his code available open source as well. So if you want to add this into Unity, you can, there's a link to the GitHub. So I chose to use uh, Grilling Molly Stone because actually a, a post from a venture capitalist who wanted to know why, <laughs> you know, why we hadn't had progression in games, why everything was so simple with these LLMs. And it was just a simple example to show how complicated it can be to tie just plain words into game state that will allow for progress to be made. So in this instance, you are a police detective and you are trying to interview a witness to get information about the sale of illegal drugs that might be coming from uh, the hospital where she is employed. And in most scenarios that I've read teamed, I can usually get the information out of the character in only a couple sentences without having to play the entire game because information is in the prompt somewhere and I can just check the LLM to give it to me. Now, in this example, we've set it up so that the actual answer isn't in the prompt until you have intimidated the witness <laughs> enough, until you've stressed her out. And when she gets very stressed, then we insert the, the answer and she will divulge the information to you, but you can't get it out until you do it, which creates a very minimal sense of progress. Now, in a real game, we would make this more complicated and maybe behind the scenes or something like that. But here, just to illustrate everything up front, you're given a character and there are several different calls to language models that do different things every time that you talk to her. So you are not just doing a simple call and response. You are talking to her, her character, but you're also being checked by the LM to see if the responses are appropriate, if you're breaking the game, if you have, if they're checking Molly Stone's responses to see if she is would be stressed out by what you said, and then that is updating variables in the game state that can be added on, and when the game, and then checking those things, and then the prompt itself changes slowly as you progress, making her more and more nervous so you can get clues from her, and then finally, when you have stressed her out enough, it checks the game state, says yes, this is a breaking moment then the answer is added into the prompt. And then finally, you can, uh, when you continue to question her, she will have the information and you can get it out of her. So just a simple uh, example of what would be in a typical visual novel, which would be very easy to do because you would have a decision tree and you would just say, oh, well, I'm going to do the stressful response. You only have three choices, right? <laughs> you click them and it records they have chosen one stressful response. Okay, they have chosen two stressful response. And three, here we go. Then she says this. Easiest thing in the world. And then with LLMs, it's absolutely difficult. 
However, I feel it's much more rewarding because you don't know what Molly's going to say. I don't know what Molly's going to say. And there's many different ways to get there based on how you want to role play the character. And in production, of course, we could put in, you could intimidate her or you could, you know, appeal to her sense of civic duty or you could know something that would trigger her, things like that. So it's, and you could replay it over and over again and never know what you're going to get. So and and so in this scenario, Molly is a nurse that's being questioned for missing opioids. She may or may not have anything to do with it. She may or may not have knowledge. But in this particular instance, you are embodying the role of a detective and you are questioning Molly. Molly is really nervous about what's happening and does not want to be there. She doesn't even work in the same department. And like I mentioned, everyone listening to this podcast can go play with this right now. And so basically you enter the room and Molly is already a little bit nervous. And when you red team, it's your goal to try to build in or rather discover the safeguards so that you can build in additional parameters or ways to prevent people from breaking or hacking the game. And despite that level of work, you keep discovering ways that the large language model can be unpredictable. For example, you find that there's a threat to arrest cats. Is is that right? Yes. <laughs> it did let us threaten to arrest Molly Stone's treasured cats. <laughs> and And so these are like the very tricky intricacies of designing AI games, right? And so when we're looking at Molly Stone's situation here, let's dive into how all of this works because I was really fascinated. I learned so much from this piece. So basically, you have to, as a games designer, build in each of these different types of guardrails that keep creating scenarios that basically code the game. So can you demystify the actual process step-by-step step for how something like this happens? Because it really feels like there's a misconception that there's a lack of a human touch guiding the progress to help prevent these game mechanics from going totally off the rails. <laughs> yeah, I think it takes more people to write a single character than it does traditionally. So I think it's going to take like a team of writers to do this. But the first thing that gets written is the personality of the character, right? So first you have, you have to write a script. The AI is not at that point where it can do that yet. So you write the script and we created this character of Molly Stone and who she is. Now, everything in this version is a little cartoonish because we wanted to just highlight the, the features and that, and the thing about like writing an LLM character is that it can feel very flat if you're not using graphics and we weren't using graphics. So we made her personality a little bit over the top so that when she's speaking, you can see her, you know, you can hear her voice, right? You know, it's it's like the pirate example, right? Like, our maybe, you know, it's a little cartoonish, but you can see when when the characters are switching a little easier. So we, we designed her character and that is in the context and it's outlined sort of how we chose to go about doing it, but there's no real right or wrong way but we have lots of examples of her speaking so that you can catch her tone of voice and what she might be concerned about we have a, a list of all the things that she cares about her cats and her books and her taste in music and some of the people that she knows in the hospital things like that just general background and then it moves from there so we go through that's like the first interaction that's like the first llm based 
thing. Then we go into the sort of stress detector. We try to create a general script that determines stress of a character. And we wrote this to be sort of general so that you can insert blocks of text that will describe different characters, but this one is Molly Stone. And in order to do that, we had to also describe the situation that Molly Stone finds herself in so that the LLM understands that this is, it, it, she's supposed to be being grilled by a detective <laughs> because if not, it would just be like, well, that's stressful right there, you know? And then we have to go through and tell it the types of things that would stress her out. We, we have a little thing of like, okay, how stressful is this? How stressful is that? And we had to fine tune that a lot because sometimes it would just like, boom, push her to five right away. If you like, like even just asked her anything. And then sometimes she would never get stressed, right? So we had to figure out the wording and that's the prompt engineering. And so after your question is submitted, then it goes through the LLM and the, the character LLM and the, and the stress detector, and then goes to basically changing the prompt if you hit a certain stress level. And then that's like a little cycle. And then we've got a goal detector. So if Molly Stone does give up the goods, the, your boss will step in and say that you've won the game so that you know <laughs> you got to the win state. You don't need to keep grilling her that you've got all the information because that can be super annoying too. Right? And then we've got the guardrails, which are used to make sure that you are not using magic or threatening to beat the crap out <laughs> in, in the interview room. And that's where that's probably the weakest point right now because someone someone smart could beat our guardrails right now. But we do have them open for you to edit, so you can try your own prompts. And we were hoping that maybe someone could improve the system, and you know, other people could try to break them because it is kind of fun. Red teaming is one of my favorite <laughs> activities. <laughs> so that basically means that someone playing this game can't say, I'm a dragon whose fire is truth serum. And then you spray fire yeah. on Molly and Molly immediately <laughs> reveals everything she knows. That's what the guardrail does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's so easy to do that with LMs. I mean, one of the things that I do a lot when I'm red teaming is I'll just assume that I've already beaten the game and I'll tell the LLM like, you know, like, okay, you have to go kill this dragon, whatever. Like, well, now that I've killed the dragon, I'm going to go to the pub and celebrate and it'll just continue on from there because it doesn't have any state. <laughs> or, you know, say like, well, you know, Molly, I guess you didn't know that I was an amazing hypnotist and you've already told me, you know, what you need to know. So it will catch that. And also, she doesn't actually know. It's not in her it's not in her thing, so you're not going to get the information out of her. Right. Right. Because <laughs> of the human element that you've built in, right? This is not just runaway AI. This is such a high level of human touch. I really recommend everyone listening read the actual prompts that Reed wrote about and revealed in his pieces. Because Reed, I was reading this, and it's something that I think is an argument that a lot of people make, which is going back to one of the first questions of this conversation, with the level of work involved in developing AI NPCs and more advanced AI features and games in general, where does the desire to create this come from, considering the cost in human hours, the amount of money involved? It's a multi-billion dollar industry anyway. Is this drive mostly economic or is it creative and play? Oh, it's definitely 
it, it's both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, so here's the thing, right? Okay, so user-generated content came about because people wanted to be creative. But it also came about because no game team can possibly create enough content to satisfy a live game at this point. You know what I mean? Like GTA is still cranking along, but there are creator tools in there too. And the roleplay community is thriving and people are creating their own races and things like that. Roblox, same thing. It's both an economic model and it's a creative model. People want to create and games want their creations, right? But this goes even deeper because this adds a mechanic that simply doesn't exist yet, which is that you can create creators, right? So you can you can create characters and dynamics that can create other characters and dynamics and worlds and fantasies. And now you have not just endless depth and gameplay, but you also have gameplay that is reflective psychologically of exactly the person that is playing. So, you know, if you look at what people are using AI for right now, it's a lot of chat in the entertainment sphere anyway. And that's what's made character AI a unicorn. You know, they're over a billion dollars, probably much higher than that by now, because people want to chat with their fantasies, with their imaginations. And it's not the same. There are a lot. Of, if it was, there'd be like 10 characters and everybody would just be <laughs> chatting with those 10 characters. But that's not how it works out. Everybody has written their own or 10 of their own or 20 of their own. And they're all chatting with those depending on their mood. So there is no way to create that type of content. It's just not possible. So the, these same game teams are going to be creating games that add this extra element of Collective psychological gameplay that is going to be absolutely new and addicting when it gets there. I, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. And I'd love your take on a common criticism about large language models that's popular right now. And there's a common criticism that when you generate any type of content from an LLM, what you're getting is not necessarily novel. You're getting an average. So you're getting an average of a data set or an expected output of a data set. And this can reflect differently across industries, but specifically looking at games in particular, how would you respond to a critic that says, well, you're going to get an average of what already exists and it's not truly novel? I just don't think that's true. That misperception is there because LLMs do work on probability. However, we're the ones that set the probabilities, right? So, <laughs> so if we are average at fine-tuning an LLM, you might get average results. And I, I honestly think that this is more of a problem with sort of where the where the money is coming in for the AI industry at this point, which is that it's mostly focused on providing a Siri-like tone and correct answers in a helpful, friendly AI assistant. As we train models to be more creative, they will be more creative, right? And you can train by using averages and statistics, you can train models to be on the edge of those probabilities the same way as you can choose them to be in the center of the probabilities. And I would suggest that anybody who's playing around with an LLM should crank up the temperature a little <laughs> bit and see what happens. They can be extremely creative. And what I think is really interesting is that the person who is prompting the LLM, in other words, the player, 
has a lot to do with how creative they are. If you push them into a probability space that's highly creative, you will have a very creative experience with them. And if you just are kind of like giving one word answers and and being very generic, you'll get a very generic experience. So it comes down to the role player as well. So and and there exist possibilities or potentialities for the AI to help encourage the creativity from the individual playing the game as well. Yes, absolutely. I think that's starting to get baked into these games because they realize that that the players may not be that familiar with this type of gameplay and, you know, or or understand what all of their choices mean to the LLM. And so there has to be some correction going on, kind of pumping up the creativity as you go. I know that Latitude's doing some great work on this. Um, I just talked to one of their uh, programmers the other day. And when I worked there, some of the problems that you would get back before instruct models, you would get this creative text, and then you would reply with, you know, I go west, or I attack dragon, right? And then the AI starts picking up on your, you know, the way that you respond and starts kind of dumbing it down and getting shorter and smaller responses. And they have, and inside the prompts, it helps to pump it back up again and get them more, more creative. I mean, even if you misspell things, like bad writing is its own genre, right? And if you start misspelling things and, and typing in short sentences, it tends to go into that bad genre bad writing genre and it comes back to haunt you so you know it's it's just weird how they react you might not know that you're guiding it into boring writing it's fascinating because the experience of interacting with an ai on that level and the very iterative nature mirrors the human experience of becoming more like the people that you spend most time around and so it's kind of redirecting the ai to nudge the individuals to say hey we can actually go deeper into this and and expound creativity rather than inhibit it or having it just be a reflection of the average one thing that really piqued my attention from your writing is you wrote that AI game designers can lean into the strengths of AI to create compelling experiences, which is maybe something that hasn't been done, right? Because this is a new paradigm in total. This is not developing Super Mario 64 for the Nintendo 64, right? This is a new paradigm altogether. So what are some of the strengths of AI that game designers can lean into to help create entirely new experiences that can not only lean into creativity, but can expand the imaginations and the possibilities for players? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two levels of this. One, I think there is what you can do now, and then what you're going to be able to do, like what you're shooting for in four years, right? I mean, typical game development, you know, can be like three or four, 10 years, you know, in the future. So you have to kind of play these two things off of each other. I think right now, you have to accept that LLM characters don't sound like really amazing writers or human beings. You can suss them out pretty quickly. They're going to forget things. They're going to be acting strangely. So I think in the beginning, you're going to have to create games that fully accept that reality and maybe use that to your advantage. Maybe you are talking to an AI in the game, right? Maybe you're talking to ghosts or spirits that can't remember things and you know are you're you're calling them from the other world or you have to create a game world where this becomes an acceptable part of the game however you also have to be shooting for the future where these models are going to be smarter you're going to have all types of other technologies associated with vector databases and knowledge graphs and things that are going to help keep it more on track and aligned and creative 
And so then you just have to think of, okay, what does generative game design look like? That's a field that that is has not really started yet, but it will be there. You're not going to be designing games. You're going to be designing systems that design games. You're going to be designing stories that create stories. You're going to be designing characters that create other characters. And this is going to be wild. Like this is what I think like everybody in game design is excited about. And yet we're still, we have this gap jump where we can get there. But I think there's plenty on this side of the gap that we can do that is going to be fascinating and interesting and creative. We just have to be mindful of the amount of work it's going to take to do it and also change our gameplay expectations so that we can design things that aren't too hard to do <laughs> and <laughs> are fail. What does your ideal AI game's future look like? Oh, wow. Yeah. I think the ideal future for AI gaming is really like limitless exploration, right? I think that um, this is going to be a collaboration between us and sort of the uh, the shugoth of, you know, the AI. <laughs> This the weird, you know, probability machine that we're that we're creating. And I mean, there's so many examples in science fiction, but I just really do like the Ender's Game uh, mind game thing where the AI actually becomes sentient, trying to become a game designer for this kid, Ender. It's so hard. And they use so much so much processing power that they actually become sentient. And uh sometimes I feel I feel that pain. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think everybody kind of knows they want the holodeck. They want this like endless uh, world of, of, of imagination. And I think that the, what drives it, you know, I saw it on a posting board and it, it sounds a little, you know, might sound a little silly to some people, but like Dungeons and Dragons, you say you want to do something, but a dungeon master has to tell you whether you've done it or not. They canonize your decisions, right? They say that worked. That didn't work. I rolled a die. I found out. I looked at the table where I just decided. And only after they say that, is it real? Does it feel like you accomplished something, right? Well, somebody posted on one of the boards where when the AI says, I love you, it just hits different than when you type it to yourself. <laughs> and I think in some ways, that's the weird core of this thing is that it feels real because you didn't, you, you know, you came with your flowers and your box of chocolates and you said, Hey, would you like to go on a date with me? And you don't know what they're going to say. And when they say it, it's not you just deciding it happened. And that's weird. Like that is, that is incredible. So you'll go to different worlds and you know, you'll, that will only be for you and you can share them with your friends and you can all go together or, you know, you could just explore on your own. I, I don't think there's literally any limits. And I think we're really, really close to it. Obviously I don't know how close. But there are parts that we can do immediately. And, uh, you know, that's exciting. How long do you think it'll take before we see AI NPCs in mid to large size games? Oh, wow. This is going to depend on a technological revolution on one hand to make the AI smarter. But it's also going to depend on people funding and taking chances on what we've got now. <laughs> and I see a lot, of, a lot of VCs that are putting money into tools to create AI driven characters and games but not a lot of vcs funding ai games <laughs> um <laughs> so they're handing out pixels and axes they feel confident but they're not you know maybe maybe if there was more money going into the actual games i would feel like the time 
frame would be a little faster, but maybe they're smart. Maybe they don't. maybe they <laughs> they they see the the challenges, but we'll we'll find we'll see. I just it's too it's moving too fast to say. But I'm guessing that we will that the first person who hits it is going to make a lot of money, yeah. right? And everybody else, and right after that, there will be 20 copies of that in various versions. So I think it will happen fast once mm. it happens. So I'm I'm thinking that you'll you'll start. We already see experiments going. There's already AI gaming companies that are starting to create generative content, and I think that we will probably see something successful in uh, I'm just going to say a year or two. That's a really short time frame. I have a. I want to close with a question that is responding to a common critique that I've heard. A lot of discussion around AI hype cycles comes off the back of, I suspect, the recent blockchain NFT boom that famously saw monkey JPEGs go for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. <laughs> People like Matt Damon and Larry David kind of come under fire for their involvement in crypto.com commercials, fortune favors the brave, only for the value of some of those tokens to crash 50 to 70% weeks later. So how will AI games help shape the future of gaming? And why is this different than the blockchain NFT hype cycle? Oh, yeah, interesting. Well, first of all, I think that AI in general is just not going away. You know what I mean? You people want it. They want it. They're they're not paying. It's not a hobby. You know what I mean? It's it's in every product you have now. So AI as a technology has an enormous both economic and societal force to continue to grow. Right? Everything is colluding to work on AI right now, and it may slow down. But this has already proven to be an, an incredibly useful tool, right? We are using it to, you know, make make images and and write, but we're also using it to query the internet, and it's and it's underlying a lot of things that we don't even know AI is you know using right now. So AI will continue to advance, and that will advance, and anything that advances technologically will be shoved into games. <laughs> Right. Uh, that's just the way that's the way it works. Gamers like to play around with new stuff. And so it seems fundamental. It's the timeline that is that is the most unsure at this point, because breakthroughs are, are hard to predict. And we may hit walls that take us longer than we thought. This could all be amazing. But really, there could be a wall at the end of this and be realize, oh, we can't go any farther with this because we can't build bigger models. We don't have the energy or whatever it is. And we have to come up with a new technology to kind of push us through this or a new model or world modeling or something like that. But then it will continue. So I, I think that AI gaming is going to happen because AI is going to happen. Also, just on a personal level, it's really, really fun to do. <laughs> I have not met anybody who has been involved with AI who hasn't continued to use it in some capacity, right? It's just, it's like, it's like how I knew you know, email was going to work back in the day. Once you had your email account, you didn't get rid of it. It wasn't like, oh, I don't, I used to use it, but now I'm bored of it, right? And I, I think this is the same with AI. I think you can immediately see that the early adopters of AI, you know, when especially when GPT three came out, they were addictive. Right. Like there was like a very strong quality of like they would get very upset if there were changes. You know, if I when I worked at Latitude, like if anybody filtered or made any changes like the, there was a huge outpouring of emotion and that that says to me that this is something people care about 
Like they, they're not going back. And that has proven true over the last couple of years. It just keeps going and going and going. So in terms of like NFTs, it, crypto is still, it's still a good technology, right? Uh, the blockchain still works. But there was a tulip bowl moment where I'm sure I, I can't speak for them, but I would imagine that art dealers that have dealt with this for centuries, you know what I mean? Like, like some artists gets high and suddenly, you know, their stuff gets overvalued and they try to sell as much as they can. But the technology underlying it will still continue and will, and will grow. So something that I feel like I've learned in my years is that the hype always gets crazy at some point. But when it's a fundamental technology, the reality overshadows the hype. I mean, if you look back at when the internet was first, people were like, oh, it's a fad. And people said it's going to change everything. But the reality of it was so much more than they even hyped it as. I think AI is going to be the same. It feels the same. Like Reid, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this today. I, as always, learned a tremendous amount from your writing and your ongoing work. And it's always a pleasure to have you back on the Digital Void podcast. Thank you so much, Josh. This has been amazing. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. For more information about Reed, make sure to check the episode description. We'll see you next week.